Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> Our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big? Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. Real everybody, I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey there, everybody. And we spoil movies tonight on the show. We wrap up our series, This is Real Life, Jack, 
with the 2003 Gary Ross horse thriller Sea Biscuit. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. I feel like I should have like some coconuts, you know, <laughs> and whistles, right? Don't you? Sure. Uh huh. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever wondered what you should be doing with your slender physique, saddle up and prepare to breeze the ponies because you're up next in The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. And since Games Master Stephen Smart currently has his foot stuck in a stirrup and is being dragged around the stables, I'm here to fill you in on this week's game. The movie was 27 Dresses and Fletcher's 2008 wedding rom com starring Catherine. Heigl and James Marsden. Congrats at Fegfi for once again figuring it out this time on Image 3. You are once again entered into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. What is the deal with Stephen Smart and his foot? Like, it feels like it's been in a foot or a vice or some sort of horrible thing for a lot of weeks. Are we ever going to hear from him again? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> He's being drugged through a series of barns across the United Kingdom. <laughs> It's not that big of a place. We miss you, Stephen Smart. <laughs> Come back to us. Anyway. He will we... He will with his little brace on his <laughs> He will. He will get better. That horse will rehabilitate him. And we do have a blot spot this week. A little follow-up from friend of the show, Ben Lott, talking about Black Hawk Down. Really? That's right. Black Hawk Down is definitely an intense and dramatic war film. My big problem with it is that there are so many characters in so many places all firing guns while shouting at one another for two hours. It feels authentic, but when that's what I'm being bombarded with, I cannot connect names to faces, let alone personalities to faces, so I have no emotional connection to any of them. I also failed to understand where people were and what was happening at any given moment. I didn't dislike the film, but perhaps this type of movie isn't for me. Your rank, 17. My rank, 136. I think it's. I think that's a, a fair assessment, especially going into the movie that we're about to talk about. It can be a great film and not a film for you. You know, I would say, if... The rock, paper, scissors had won that first round with Hot Fuzz. It might have been <laughs> down around there. That's true. That's true. We actually, I, I love that we actually got a comment on the epic rock, paper, scissors. But more importantly, uh, uh, the, the good Philip Hurd on Facebook wrote into us. Yes, he had some great comments. He enjoyed the episode. Um, but more importantly, we, we learned that he was actually over there in Somalia uh, just before this whole thing went down, about, uh, it looks like about uh, 10 months before this whole thing happened, um, with the military. He was an infantryman with the 3rd Battalion, 9th Marines. So uh, that's uh, pretty amazing that uh, you were over there. Glad to hear everything uh, went well as far as the part of it that you were in. And um, yeah, thanks for sharing that with us, Philip. Uh, pretty amazing stuff. We really appreciate that. And uh, on behalf of myself and Major Tom, we thank you for noting. That's all. <laughs> That's all we have to say. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. Andy, uh, on behalf of the people of Boston, I would like you to go first. Um, yes, uh, knowing that uh, we're wrapping up our uh, our series with our um, uh, true stories this week, I thought it would be fitting to pick a new film that is based on a true story. And I'm talking about the film Patriot's Day. Uh, the new Peter Berg film that is uh, going to be coming out next year, starring Mark Wahlberg, of course, Michelle Monaghan, uh, Kevin Bacon, John Goodman, J.K. Simmons, 
Melissa Benoist, uh, just a great cast. It's going to be, you know, it's it'll be a hard one. This is the story about the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing and the aftermath that happened and uh, just how tough it was, but also how amazing our, um, you know, our law enforcement and the FBI and everybody involved, um, you know, all the different military that came together to actually uh, solve this uh, this uh, devastating terrorist attack as quickly as possible and uh, and bring the... Uh, the terrorists to uh, justice. I'm looking forward to it. Um, part of it is because I actually worked on the TV movie version of it that surprisingly filmed here in Phoenix, uh, which is weird to say. It was. Uh, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can't. I, it's. I know it's strange. As a well, double it's a, for it's, Boston. <laughs> It's a TV. It was a TV um, uh, movie. It was a reenactment story, uh, you know, inside the hunt for the Boston bombers. And primarily, it was made up of real footage and interviews of all the people that were involved. And so, the portion that we did um, of the reenactments was actually um, pretty small. And it was all intercut with real news footage and stuff. So the shots didn't have to be too specific, and and we were able to actually make it look pretty good. But unfortunately, when they were filming it, it, Boston was, uh, you know, in a blizzard, and so it didn't quite look the same. (laughs) It's pretty good. And Phoenix did. (laughs) That's right. Cutting from the old church to to stucco. I'd be curious though to uh, to talk to somebody who could pinpoint shots that were shot in Phoenix. Though it's surprisingly cut in such a way that it's—I mean, I can't even tell. Yeah. So anyway, uh, but yeah, I, I'm I'm quite excited. I mean, Peter Berg has been doing this uh, for a while now, doing these uh, um, based on true stories that are uh, pretty intense. I mean, he's got one in theaters right now, and uh, you know, I haven't seen Deepwater Horizon, although it is something I'm curious about. But, you know, here it is, an, yet another one. And this is on the heels of, uh, what was the one he did right before that? Uh, it was another... P- uh, oh, yeah, because he did... Um... Yeah, it was the uh, Lone Survivor. That's Lone Survivor, that's right, With uh, yeah. also with him. Oh, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, well, yeah so it's, it's, you know, they've definitely found each other, and they are making a lot of these. So um, I know Mark Wahlberg is from Boston, so I feel like if there's anybody who's going to make sure that he's doing uh, his town proud it's going to be him so uh you know i'm looking forward to this it is coming out january makes me kind of curious kind of what's happening there i'm guessing it's going to be released in uh at the end of the year in la new york to be uh, around for award season that's my hunch i um you know i liked the trailer i thought it looked uh i thought it looked good uh in terms of this kind of movie i feel like i'm i'm getting used to peter berg's big uh, you know, big Wahlberg movies. Um, it it doesn't feel like uh, you know. I don't know if if it feels a little much. I feel like there's risk to it for to and and maybe I am hypersensitive to movies that just feel like too soon, too soon to make movies out of these events that we just experienced. Like I don't need pop culture to move that quickly. Like I still remember the news footage. I don't need to to see it again. So I I'm I am biased, sort of bearish on this film. Uh, we'll probably not see it in the theater. I'll probably wait uh, and see it. You know, in a couple of years, uh, uh, when on digital. Uh, I like the cast though. I'm I'm pretty excited about the cast. We're in the middle of binging Supergirl, so Melissa Benoist is is uh, big on on our TV every single day. 
uh, with the Supergirl. Uh, but uh, but she she actually strikes a good superhero, and it's kind of a it's it's fun to see her get bigger roles too. Um, you know, Michelle Monaghan, big fan of Michelle Monaghan's work, and of course J.K. Simmons can't lose. Ah, oh, they should make a TV show called J.K. Simmons Can't Lose. <laughs> I'd watch that. Would it be a su- sequel to Parker Lewis? It would. It would. It would. Good catch, Andy. God, I line him up. You hit him right out of the park. And John Goodman, of course. Um, uh, You know, I I need a redemptive John Goodman piece after, um, uh, you know, after he did uh, 10 Cloverfield Lang. He's got a bunch coming up, though. With Patriots Day, he's got Kong Kong Skull Island. uh, And, uh, you know, there's always Transformers the last night. Hey, with Mark Wahlberg. I know, right? (laughs) <laughs> there you go. Filmed here in Arizona. Are you, really? Well, I'm, I prob- probably was. It was probably a quarry. Was it, it a was quarry? Actually, they, a junkyard and a freeway. There you go. That's Pretty why close. people come here. Pretty close. <laughs> you already said when it's coming out, right? I wasn't listening. I Yes. Uh, like, thank you for that. Yes. <laughs> I did. <laughs> yes, I did. I'm not going to say it again. All right. Then I'm going to do my trailer. You do it. I only, I really normally would not have picked this trailer. There were a lot of great trailers this week, but I saw this one. I watched the trailer and I had to get it because I knew if I didn't, you would. And I put myself in a race with you, maybe because of the movie tonight that we're doing. It's everything's a race. It is Army of One, perhaps the best opportunity for Nicolas Cage to play himself of any film I have ever seen. This is, he okay. is a, this is also based on a true story. Uh, I have not heard anything about this story at all. The story of an American civilian, kind of a lunatic, who uh, starts hearing the voice of God, uh, and the voice of God, of course, is Russell Brand, and God tells him he needs, this guy needs to go to Pakistan and capture Osama bin Laden. Uh, and this guy is Nicolas Cage. <laughs> you you just, you have to go see, go to the webs, go to thenextreel.com. You've got to watch this trailer in the show notes uh, of this week's episode. You've got to see it because you'll know what I'm saying when you watch it. This is Nicolas Cage's, this is his chance to really shine and show us what he is made of at his core. Hand to glove. Uh, it is directed by Larry Charles. Uh, Larry Charles directed um, uh, Borat and Bruno, and and so he has worked uh, much uh, with the good uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, whatever you think of those movies and that kind of comedy. Uh, I find this interesting because here's a guy, Larry Charles, who's uh, directed these pieces. And of course, he was a producer of Seinfeld and one of the founders of Seinfeld. So you you can't um, disregard that. This is a guy who knows comedy. Uh, And... Uh, so, but when you look at at you know Bruno and Borat and um, uh, some of his other work behind you know Curb Your Own Enthusiasm and and Entourage's producer and the comedians as a producer, and then you see him doing a true story uh, where he can still let the the comedic juices sort of shine. I get really excited about that. I think it's a it's a fun experimental pre- piece. And Sasha Baron Cohen isn't in it, but when you see the trailer, you kind of figure out he could be. I got so excited when I watched it. It just looks <laughs> whack a doodle. And I'm just very excited to see uh, what happens with it. I mean, it might be one of those movies that looks so crazy that it just ends up really bad. But Nicolas Cage is just doing something completely uh, just off the rocker. And it makes me really excited. So I am very curious about this one. Um, 
and definitely want to check it out. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's got a, an interesting team behind it. Nicolas Cage, when he's uh, really getting into a role, it can it can work sometimes. So, uh, yeah, I'm kind of excited for this one. I couldn't <laughs> totally. stop laughing. So Totally. Uh, I think it has some... I'm, I, I don't know. It's a funny sort of ironic set of release dates that are available right now. Uh, pretty much USA... Uh, it will be coming limited theatrical release and uh, digital release on November 4th, DVD premiere on November 15th, and Russia December 15th. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. So, so uh, whatever you want to make of the uh, political tea leaves that the IMDb release date schedule is, um, it, it you know if you're in the United States, catch it on digital November 4th. There you go. Excellent. $100,000. Makes me want to walk on all fours and put a saddle on my back, Andy. Red Pollard, Mr. And Howard. Hi. Hello. Of course, it's nuts. I'm not afraid of you. Every horse is good for something. You don't throw a whole life away just because it's banged up a little. Seems pretty fast. Yeah, in every direction. He just needs to learn how to be a horse again. How far do you want me to take him? Charlie stops. Let's see what you got, boy. Seabiscuit Andy, 2003, written and directed by Gary Ross, uh, based on the book by Laura Hillenbrand. Uh, and uh, stars Toby Maguire, Jeff Bridges, Chris Cooper, Elizabeth Banks. Uh, it is the true story of the uh, uh, Depression era uh, uh, racehorse that went on and dominated uh, racing, and the team that made it so. And and there you go. That's the story, and it 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 makes you cry. Oh yes, it does. Doesn't it, Andy? What'd you think of it? I absolutely love this movie. I am one of those uh, people that just you know the uh, the you could say a sappiness or whatever it is, but just the emotional heart of this film I really connect to, and it's just been one of my favorites since I uh, watched it and um, really connect with this film. I think Gary Ross and his team did a really bang up job of creating a story that uh, you know I, I feel like it's more than just about Seabiscuit. I feel like they actually um, found a great way to. I mean, it, it's about Seabiscuit. It's about these three men in Seabiscuit's life that kind of are all broken men and how by coming together around this horse, they're all able to kind of um, heal each other and, and heal themselves. And I think that's really powerful. But I think it's also a really fascinating way to tell a story that really puts the viewer into kind of the situation that these people were in at the time, which, you know, was the Great Depression. And and uh, everything that happens uh, kind of right before and after the stock market crash. And there's it's, it's a 30-year period the story is uh, told over the cross over the course of and i feel like the way that they integrate the radio clips and the the narration done by uh, the wonderful david mccullough it just it really kind of unfolds and i feel like um they do this really magical job of of uh, you know it's almost like this pseudo documentary that puts me into the situation while also allowing me to really emotionally connect with these characters as they go on this journey to uh to you know 
kind of ride the ups and downs of life. I liked it. I, I did like it, and I was emotionally moved by it. I don't think I had the same connection that you did uh, to it. Um, and and I think part of it is I'm not interested in horse racing, and so I feel like I'm I'm uh, like I can't. I have a hard time getting myself interested in horse racing. So um, I tried to read a little bit of the book, and I am. It was. It, I immediately went to sleep. Like it was very difficult to for me to read the book. I watched some of the documentaries. It was it was very difficult for me to keep my attention on them. Uh, I watched as many of the early races and and the final race as I could. Those were were you know interesting though not terribly full of dramas. I wasn't there. I know how it ended. Um, it looked exactly like it did on screen, uh, and and so I was I was sort of challenged there. I am really fascinated though by the place that this horse served in the cultural fabric of the time, and I think that the the movie, as you say, does a great job of demonstrating that through all of these intersecting storylines that come together, um, you know, toward the the formation of this impromptu team around this horse and around winning these races. And I really like that a lot, even as I, I find that uh, the movie is about the most exciting thing about horse racing that I, I can think about. Um, so I'm, I'm in it with you f- around that. Um, but everything else, I, I have kind of a hard time with it up till the very end, which somehow suckers me into it. I think that's so funny that you say all that as if I'm really into horse racing, which I'm not. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I've that seen is, horse that, races. You're right. That is an unfair parallel, that I, a false parallel that I made on behalf of you. Right. It's only horse racers who, or yeah. people interested in horse racing. No, yeah, no, no. Right. I, I mean, I I've had never watched a horse race other than in movies. Uh, you know, and that's that's really my experience with the horse races. I've seen some since, but even then, I'm like, you know, I don't find them that interesting to watch. Um, although I do every year, one of these days, I I, I am going to actually plop myself down in a place so I can actually watch the Kentucky Derby because I every year I'm like, oh, I got to remember to watch the Kentucky Derby this year because I feel like I should watch the Kentucky Derby. It just seems like one of those things that people should do at least once in their lives. And every year I'm like, oh, I, I missed it. It happened like two hours ago because it's over in like two minutes. You know, <laughs> these horse races are so quick. Uh, so one of these days I will watch it. But really, I haven't seen any uh, any important horse races. I haven't really seen much. And I probably could use somebody in my life who understands them to kind of teach me some of the ins and outs. Because when I've watched, I'm like, okay, they're going around the track. Okay. And that was it. And somebody won. And, you know, they're they're not overly exciting. Yeah. But there's something about these characters and how they get into this world of horse racing and how um, I feel like the, the filmmakers are really putting me in there and connecting me with the characters. And that's what this film really is. And I think they do such a good job of is introducing us to these characters and this world as as we see them in their uh, different lives as they kind of, uh, you know, end up kind of moving in separate paths, but toward each other eventually. And I just get so connected to all of them, whether it's Red and his anger or or Tom and his kind of loss of of place or uh, Howard and his his kind of, you know, kind of devastation over the loss of a child. It's really interesting. Um, and uh, and I think just uh, it's just I don't know, it's very touching for me. The book in the in what I have read of the book, and particularly hearing uh, Hiller, Hillenbrand 
talk about the horse. It feels very much like the book does a much better job of characterizing just how out of place uh, this horse was uh, in the world of racing. Not only was it short, uh, but the way she talks about it, it had it, its body was too big for legs that were too small. It had one leg that that threw itself out toward the front, so it was always kind of leaning right. It was um, it was just a very strange, strange horse to look at, always sort of off balance. Uh, and it was also a ham. It loved to be on camera, and given so much of the media uh, was just transitioning to camera. Uh, moving pictures at the time we're you know this was the number one newspaper in america in 1938 as measured by newspaper column inches was this horse seabiscuit so um it was it, it was at a an interesting time in terms of cultural reportage of its success but also it was it made for a great escape it was a story of an underdog it was a story of an underdog Every single player on the team was an underdog. You already talked about Howard and the loss of his child. He was recovering himself, but everybody else was recovering from something. They were they were never expected to be where they were. And I think that's one of the things that that once the movie gets going, it really does pretty well. And and I think is a it's it makes for a nice touch. Well, not just uh, you know the the coming together, but the fact that you know it happens several times. I mean, Red. He's, you know, he's this broken man, abandoned as a as a child, and kind of, you know, his parents leave him because they can't take care of him. Uh, he's a very angry man, and he kind of, you know, through teaming up with with Seabiscuit and uh, through the uh, kindness of, uh, of Charles Howard, he's healed and he he's kind of making his way now. But then he gets injured, and it's like, and then he's back down at the bottom, and then he has to work his way back up. It's really interesting the way that it has these ups and downs, and I think it's. It the movie pairs so nicely with the struggles that everybody was going through at the time in the depression and how hard life was in general and and like you said having this underdog that people could kind of root for especially when he goes up against um, you know war admiral during the uh, the um, match race later in the film and how to the little guy and how all these people who are just kind of struggling to make ends meet how kind of inspiring it was to see you know that here's this this up and comer. Uh, from the West Coast, who is, you know, kind of a, you know, a, a, a runt like me, and here they are uh, finding a way to make it to the top. And it's, I, I find it really fascinating. Uh, the script was written by uh, Gary Ross. We already mentioned Gary Ross behind Big and Pleasantville and Dave and Free State of Jones, which I have not seen, uh, and The Tale of Despero, big favorite around here. Uh, also, Hunger Games and Mr. Baseball. I mean, he really has written sort of the spectrum of films that uh, that you know I find my own affinity to. Uh, some are great, some are not so great. Uh, how does this one stack up from your perspective as a as a screenplay? You know, I was hoping to look at the script and see how he wrote it. I, I got little glimpses of it in some of the um, uh, special features on the D, on the DVD, but they uh, they uh, he is a writer-director, although I like how he kind of uh, thinks of himself as... I, I, he plans the script and he writes it, and then he's like, and then I have to turn the writer off and I have to be the director because it's hard to be the writer-director. You know, you feel like you're kind of dancing between these two things. So once he's the director, then he kind of puts himself in a place where he's okay kind of directing and doing things to the script that he probably wouldn't have done as the writer. And I think that's very interesting. Um, I think as the the script goes, um, as a as a writer-director, he's one of those guys who writes kind of in code, and it's shorthand, and, and he, he 
puts visuals in there and, and he kind of plans it out in his head the way that he is going to actually direct it. And I think that's always a really interesting way to read a script when it is a writer-director who kind of writes that way. The Coen brothers can sometimes do that. Um, other directors who are writer-directors will do that too. And it's it's interesting. And so I was hoping to look at it. But, you know, I think he does a great job of compressing such a huge amount of time into a, just over a two-hour movie and, and kind of finding the ways to transition. I, you know, as a screenwriter, it's so important to find the way to transition your stories from scene to scene. And I think he does a really magnificent job of moving us from moment to moment and, and from scene to scene and from beat to beat as he kind of uh, as he kind of navigates these three lives and four lives, really, once you get Seabiscuit in there over these 30 years. I, I think that it, I think he does a great job. So give me an example of, of you know, how he uses these transitions to good effect. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a bunch of them and they're all over the place and they're all different kinds. But I mean, one in my head right now is you've got a, uh, a moment when I think it's the young red and, um, his dad has just gotten him a horse and the way that the, the shot transitions, you have this great shot of young red as he's riding on his horse and he jumps over a, uh, whatever the horses jump over a jump thing. And I know that's very technical. <laughs> a term. gate. A gate. Thank you. See, you know more about this than I do. I, you know, I have a dirty Mr. secret. I hate do horse wanna, riding. Do you want to hear my dirty secret? Oh, I spent yeah, a lot of great. years riding Western show and competing on a what? horse. My horse was named Bartlett. He was beautiful. I rode cart uh, and raced cart with my dad uh, growing up. Like, I spent a lot of years on track uh, as, a, as a youth. That's, Listen and, to you. So, I, if you if you need some help with terminology, I may be able to come to your aid. That doesn't mean I like horse racing all that much anymore. So, I'm just saying. So you're bitter is what happened. <laughs> Note: I'm not a jockey now. I'm six two and could never qualify. So shut up, Andy. You could have got a really big horse. <laughs> okay. So anyway. So he jumps over the gate and, he, you know, he's moving from screen right to left. And just as he jumps over the gate, we cut to uh, the table at Charles Howard's house as a big roasted pig is plopped down onto the table in the same mo motion that we have that. And so you get this transition of movement from one scene to the other, just kind of flowing as we move uh, to kind of tie these stories together and just kind of keep the flow going so that our eyes are moving the same way and the story just kind of, the pacing keeps going and everything kind of gets connected. So that's a that's a great example of a visual uh, transition that we do here. Um, and then the narration, I think, is another great transition element that we have, how we see things that are happening, like we see the, the the automobile, for example, and how that kind of transitions, we get some narration that transitions us to uh, Charles Howard leaving the bike shop, and now he's, you know, doing the car stuff. And then that transitions to us meeting Tom as he sees the barbed wire all of a sudden in his, you know, he's out chasing horses earlier, and now all of a sudden there's barbed wire, he looks over, there's a road, now we've got cars driving on the road, then that transitions immediately to Charles Howard talking 
being, you know, doing this cross country race and talking about the future. It moves so quickly. And he found ways, I think, to really transition us from moment to moment to just keep this story moving just forward, just at a, at a fantastic pace. You know, I asked the question sort of rhetorically, but I'll talk about it now, uh, um, related specifically to transitions and the narrator. Because we talk so often about you know voiceovers, do we really need the narrator to move this story forward? And it sounds like, from your perspective, we do. I, I think that this story could have been told without a narrator. I don't think it necessarily needed a narrator. But I think what Gary Ross did by incorporating the elements that we get with the narration throughout is a connection to the sense of time and the sense of space outside of the people in the story. I think what we get with the narration is a connection to the automobile and how that's changing our times and how it's it maybe moving people away from kind of the, the way of life that we had before to kind of this way of life that we have now. Very uh, Magnificent Ambersons sort of story. Um, but then we also are getting the sense of space as far as, you know, how difficult it is for people with this Great Depression and the market crisis and all the stuff that goes on. And that's what I love about the narration is it it's not narration done in that uh, way that filmmakers tell you don't use narration because it's a it's a device that uh, that you that writers use and it's gonna it'll destroy your script. It's not that sort of narration. This is almost like a, a documentary sort of narration that I think kind of, Gary Ross chose to kind of step outside of the story a little bit and give us some sense of space, world building. Yeah, I I think so too. And I, you know, I've talked a bunch on this show about how much I I love the idea of setting context, you know, about about understanding what was going on at the time that the film was made or the period that the film was made uh to to give us a better sense of of, you know, the story itself and the implications of the story and the stakes of the story. I think it's a really important thing to do and in this case in this film specifically these narration breaks uh, give us exactly that, quite literally, right? I mean, they give us a little history lesson and and sort of set us up for, um, you know, w- the story to come and the emotional connection they want us to make with the story yet to come uh, as a result of our better understanding. We have to understand what was going on in the period to understand the stakes that these people, these individual lives, um, you know, were were kind of living under. And and I think that's a, I, I really found it a nice touch. And I like David McAuliffe. And, uh, and I think his voice is, is wonderful. It's, it's a little bit jarring at first. The first you know, the opening sequence before you know the setup of the movie, you think you're going to a horse movie and it starts with this, you know, talking about, you know, automation and, uh, you know, what is happening in the, in the leading up to this in the late thirties. And you sort of get a sense of the pace of change coming out of the great depression and the pace of people going to work at these, uh, at these lines and, um, you know, gearing up to be making, you know, airplanes by the day, not by the week, not by the month, but by the day to support the war effort. And and these are all things that are happening leading into the 40s that that end up being really impactful and, and give us, I think, a really nice sense of place in the back of our minds as we watch this, what ultimately is a small story about a small horse that wins races. Yeah, and and a very personal one. I mean, you know, just the way that these people all connect to him, and just uh, I think not just our our three 
uh, protagonists and and the people kind of in their lives, but how everybody really ended up connecting to this. I mean, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but the the way that or the number of people that would tune in to these races. I mean, it was like I, I think that the match race. I think it was like forty million people tuned in to listen to this, which was like um, uh, via radio. And which I think they, it was like in retro, or if you, if you look statistically at how many people that was versus how many people were in the United States at the time, I think statistically that is actually more, uh, a higher number of people tuning in to listen to Seabiscuit's race than it would be to like tuning in to watch the Super Bowl. That is, I, I, that is 129.8 million people in the United States in 1938. And so, yeah, that's like, uh, you know, a third of the people in the country practically were tuning in to listen to the Seabiscuits race. Yeah. That's a yeah. lot of ears. <laughs> that's amazing. Crazy. Laura Hillenbrand, what what I find interesting to her as the author, uh, interesting about her as the author of the book, this book served a real key place for her as the writer because she was suffering from, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome and, uh, from what I understand, chronic pain. And she would, uh, there were periods where she just, she, she couldn't write. So she spent a lot of time writing in her head as she would, you know, drift in and out of, of sleep and, and uh, that it was absolutely an obsessive, her words, obsessive labor of love to write this book and and um, uh, apparently it it performed very well it did it was uh it i mean tons of awards and honors uh it was you know sport book of the year uh by a number of people a lot of best books of the year lists uh best nonfiction lists i mean it just it was all over the place as far as uh the kudos that the book received and i think it was like you know one of the top selling sports book uh sports books ever uh, I mean, it's just amazing how well this book did. Uh, so Gary Ross actually directed the film, too. And this is where I start to have challenges with it. And I know you don't agree. No, oh, tell me. I know you, I know you don't. My challenge is— the, the, Bring the it. First, for, <laughs> for me, the first 45 minutes is just chopped salad. And and I feel like uh, it is that, that he, he, there was a struggle in my head for him to bring together— the uh the stories the interweaving stories of these people as they they sort of grow and merge into one narrative and that that all sort of takes about the first 40 minutes or so and and it is it's just a mess for me of just slap cuts and uh, between people i it took me the longest time to figure out that uh young red and middle-aged young red and adult red were actually the same person uh, and I'd even seen the movie before. Like, who the heck is that little redhead kid? You know, I I, I could not make the connection that that was a, a a a transition, an age transition character. I really struggled making sense of of the different stories of of Chris Cooper's character riding across the the plains and making his way back and. Uh, I just they didn't make any sense. And I think that's a function of direction because he takes ownership of it and a function of, uh, uh, you know, editing uh, because it was it was not told in a smooth sort of narrative function for me. But all of that really finds its stride you know, right when they all start working together to train this horse. And I I fall in a, a much better relationship with it. Uh, I just feel like 40 minutes for me is a lot of runway. Like, it it would have been hard for me to to sit through that first 40 minutes and give the whole film a chance if I just flipped to it and saw, oh, 
Seabiscuit's on. I'm going to give this a shot. I would not have given it a shot. I would have turned it off. I can't wait to have another conversation about Seabiscuit with you in about 10 years when you uh, watch it and go, gosh, what an idiot I was (laughs) thinking all of (laughs) that. But it's been like 10 years since I've seen it. So it's got to be. I I mean, we got this is that conversation and I am not having that sort of experience. I think you're wrong. And I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like it shocks me. Like of all the things that you could say, I'm like, I I think that Gary Ross shows brilliant uh, control and brilliant um, uh, just a, a sense of storytelling as he navigates his way through the whole beginning. I uh, I don't know. I find it uh, a really solid story, and I think that it's very easy to understand everything that's going on, who's doing what, where they are, and how they all tie together. And I have no problem making my way through that uh, first act as we uh, lead up to the meeting with Seabiscuit. But Man, yeah, that's just me. I Well, clearly. It's, and maybe just me and, you. Me and all the people who got it nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> Uh, I yeah it, it didn't it it didn't sit that way for me it sat for me as it just sort of inefficient I hit that that space where the horse starts running and I think okay this is the film I tuned in for I didn't need any of that stuff uh, the way it was presented if it was going to be presented that way and my choice was let's leave that in or let's cut it for time I would have cut it for time and found another way to get from uh, to use David McAuliffe to get us to the to the point where we meet the horse. And uh, and let's move on. Let's move on with the story. I, I, I... There, that's where all the character introductions are. That's where you're learning about these these people and their lives and how difficult it is. I mean, it's for me. That's everything we need to get us into the rest of the story, so that we have the connection we need with everybody. And but, you, know. you know what? I don't disagree with that. And and I really, I'm I'm saying, you know, I'm I'm speaking a bit hyperbolically there because I'm not suggesting that my that I would I'd rather see this movie without the first 40 minutes. What I'm saying is the first 40 minutes were really rough for me. They were sloppy and I didn't I wasn't able to keep in in touch with the story that they were trying to tell even though I agree with you that we need it and it's important. Uh, all I can say to that is I know that there are people out there who do find uh you know Gary Ross and his filmmaking style it 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 can be rough for some people and the emotional the you know I, I there's a definitely a heightened emotion with this film it is very um you you could say cheesy it is it is very um uh, emotionally big and I have no problem with that. And I, some people, you know, have issue with films that wear their emotions on their sleeve and they want films that are more restrained. I think that the world is good having both types of films. And I think that Gary Ross uh, can, you know, you could say he's a very brave filmmaker for making such a, an emotional story. And I, I think that some people are probably going to say, you know what, the beginning uh, I don't need all of that because I really just want to get into this story about this horse and all of the build up to it isn't as necessary. It's not as interesting to me. And you know what? That's fine. People are going to say that. I think that everything that we have leading up to it is an incredibly important part of the story. I really like how he, Gary chose to do it. and uh, But I acknowledge that it's not for everybody. <laughs> Agree to disagree. That's right. <laughs> First shot, last shot. Would you like to begin? Yeah, the first shot, we open with David McCullough uh, narrating over a bunch of historical photos about the first Ford's Model T, uh, manufacturing of cars, and talking about the cultural impact, the assembly, assembly line, industrialization, how quickly that changed, and how quickly that really started changing 
our lives. And that's really kind of the the open. We get it's like a little history lesson. The last shot it really highlights John Schwartzman's incredible camera work. We're we're wrapping up uh you know the the last race that we see with Seabiscuit. It is slow motion. It, it, we have been cutting back and forth between uh the crowd and the race in action as Seabiscuit pulls away and uh the crowd is going wild as Seabiscuit wins the race. We get a close up on Toby Maguire's face uh, red's face and uh we are the camera slowly 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 pans left as we pull straight on the track from the horse's perspective and we are just pummeling forward on an empty open track there is no competition ahead in this glorious slow motion it is beautiful beautiful treatment uh and uh it it speaks of the uh, i think optimism and uh, excitement of the future. Yeah, and uh, I think it's also just you know the way that uh, the people uh, um, in our story have have found their way through, and they have shown time and time again any uh, any problems that they face, um, they're going to get back up and and keep fighting on. And I think that's a, a beautiful way to end the film. It's an interesting pairing, though the the opening and closing. It's the, there's not really uh, much of a direct tie between the two, other than you know you've got kind of the world of the machine and how it's changing our world, and then at the end you have. Uh, I mean, it's it's a horse race. You're on a track, um, but in a way you're kind of you know there's there, you're not seeing anybody or anything there. It's just this kind of. Um, avant-garde shot almost kind of of this track as you're kind of moving down it um but in a way it's kind of connecting you with nature a little more you know you're riding the horse so in that sense i guess there's kind of the you know how things are changing yet how we're still staying connected to the living world i i would just add to that too that this is also a film very much about you know uh, our relationship to obstacles right overcoming personal obstacles and technological obstacles the entire sort of first 15 minutes past that narration about uh you know howard's kind of work in the bicycle shop and understanding the steamer and fixing things he you know agreeing to fix things he doesn't really know how to fix but just his his experience growing his empire um, it's all about overcoming obstacles and to open on uh, you know the way we collectively um, you know the the American way of overcoming obstacles in production. Uh, also, you know, this track symbolizes, look look ahead, there is nothing that can stand in our way. Absolutely nothing. And I think that's really symbolic. Um, you know, it wears its symbolism for me right on its horseshoe. Um, and, and I think in this case, it, it, it works. If it, if it draws a tear, it works. Absolutely. Casting. Uh, Deborah Zane and Terry Taylor are responsible for casting this film. Uh, where do you start casting horses? Well, luckily, I don't think they had to deal with the horse <laughs> casting. but uh... I can see binders. Binders of horse <laughs> headshots. <laughs> yeah, but talking about Seabiscuit uh, in the world of casting, obviously, Deborah Zane and Terry Taylor didn't have anything to do with Seabiscuit, but uh, they did end up using 11 horses for Seabiscuit. Really 10, but 11 if you count the foal when we see the baby baby sea biscuit that mm. they get rid of that one <laughs> put him in the glue factory uh, oh, so, I, you're, you're such a monopoly guy uh, uh, <laughs> 
but these but it's you know it's funny when you're when you're making a horse film and you have a horse that has such personality you need a variety of horses to play all the different uh, versions of him you've got the angry sea biscuit that's kicking everything and and trying to bite at people and everything you've got the lazy one who lolls around in the fields eating apples you've got a fast one you've got a slow one you've got uh, you know, one that uh, works well when they're doing the photo shoots and all that sort of stuff. A whole variety of different horses for very specific reasons. And uh, I, I think that's so interesting that they have to do that. Not to mention all the other horses. I mean, you know, the the variety of horses that they had to cast for this. I can only imagine the whole separate casting director. And maybe... <laughs> I wonder, you know, I wonder how they do that. I mean, is it is it boiled down to uh, race times or how well they listen? You know, I'm curious about how that whole thing works. Jeff Bridges uh, plays Charles Howard. Good old Jeff Bridges. And Jeff Bridges is great. I, I Jeff Bridges is, when is just he not? great, right? <laughs> when is he not? He is he's nuts and he's great. Um, I I really like Jeff Bridges in this movie. I think he's he plays the uh, you know he plays Jeff Bridges playing Charles Howard. I mean, I really find him uh, really affable in this film. I don't think that the script does a, a, an apt job uh, and gives Bridges enough to play with. Uh, in terms of how just how brilliant and crazy Charles Howard was as a person in looking, he was a master at branding uh, and marketing this horse, and uh, to the point where they were naming fruit after Sea Sea Biscuit. They soldiers were drawing, you know, instead of drawing ladies and uh, you know on the nose cones of their bombers, they would draw Sea Biscuit. They would paint Sea Biscuit on their on their planes, leading them into battle. I mean, Sea Biscuit was everywhere, and I think uh, um, you know, I think Jeff Bridges could have done more with the uh, the Howard Hughes esque. Um, uh, persona that was Charles Howard. Yeah, he could have. Um, I, I guess it just depends on how you're going to write it. And I, I think that what, I mean, there's so much. I mean, this is the sort of thing where, you know, you could do the uh, the version of his story that fits this one. I mean, if you look at Howard Hughes, we've got The Aviator. We've got uh, the new one coming out with... Um, yeah, Beatty, uh, Warren Beatty. Yeah, Warren Beatty. Uh, you know, and then there was that one that came out in the eighties. Uh, you know, and it, there's there's so many different versions of a person that you can tell. And I think what they they chose to really focus on was the broken side of Howard and how losing a son uh, to an automobile really changed his view on his position in the world of automobiles, and just kind of left it at that. And so, I, and I thought that was fine focusing on that. Um, he, you're right. He certainly has other things in his life that are uh, very crazy and and. Uh, definitely interesting notes well Um, it's important though don't you think that if you're going to tell the story of howard as he lost his son and rebuilt you also have to tell the the story uh from a character's perspective of howard and how he relates to this horse those are two very different parts of his life over the course of of the years that were compressed here and we sort of need both of them is what i'm saying like i think it's perfectly okay to talk about howard and what he lost in order to be where he is today that's great but i i think there's more mania that would have set a, a much better tone for who this character is well, yeah, I guess. Um, I, I just don't know if that was the story here. I mean, this one really focused on him and then really his relationship with not so much just the sea biscuit side of it, but really the red side of it and how red kind of became this surrogate son and how he kind of saw him 
as this son. And I, you know, I, I, for me, that was kind of the focus of it, but you're right. I mean, there's, there's definitely sides to Charles Howard that are pretty interesting. And you know, it's interesting. The, the movie focuses so much on telling the story about Charles Howard's um, loss of his son and how red becomes, becomes kind of the surrogate son for him. It doesn't even mention that he had other children, you know, it's <laughs> right. It's, it's an interesting little uh, kind of footnote. It's like, yeah, he actually has what, like three other kids and uh, it doesn't bring that up. And, you know, it's, it makes me wonder, it's like, well, how much was he really, um, you know, hurting for um, this loss of a child if he had these other children um, that were kind of um, there. Did he kind of not pay attention to them because right. Red was kind of his surrogate child? Because in terms of this performance, right, they play this as if he is in mourning until the bitter end, right? There is, he is not a well person. He's not completely put together emotionally until the bitter end of the film. And that's for dramatic purpose. I get that. Um, but I, I do think we're missing a big part of it. Some of that may be boil down to the book. I haven't read the book, but uh, it, you know the way that it sounds is that uh, Laura really kind of focused on on the relationship between these three people and right. the horse. And it's entirely possible that that was just kind of a direction she took in the book. And, and that's just how Ross went with it, because that's how it was presented there. I, I, I don't know. I haven't read the book. All right. How about Elizabeth Banks? I just love her. I think that she's uh, fantastic. This is probably where I fell in love with her uh, because she's just so awesome, uh, despite the fact that she had bit parts in like Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2. Um, but this was really just, uh, you know, where she kind of came into her own. And uh, man, it's just easy to fall in love with her. I So I found myself really sort of torn on Elizabeth Banks because I felt like, I mean, this was still reasonably early in her career, although she had, you know, some notable roles before that, you know, Wet Hot American Summer and Spider-Man, obviously Betty Brandt and uh, Catch Me If You Can she was in. And you know, she was in a number of, of films leading up to Seabiscuit. Small roles. Small roles. But this role, it, it was a, uh, you know, it was the... It, the partner role to the rich industrialist. And I felt like it, it was ultimately, you know, transplantable. Uh, I, I didn't see anything that I really adore about Elizabeth Banks and her work today uh, in this. And I, I, you know, I just, I miss it. It's, it, I don't think she could have done more. It, the part wasn't written to be a big part. It was, it was a, a tough woman who can yeah. handle the, the world of men in the thirties um, and and could hold her own with them. But she was a woman in the 30s, and it really is, to a large extent, the thankless wife role, right? I mean, that's to a large extent, that's what the role is. I just think that it's, it, at this point in her career, it was great to see her, uh, you know, there and in a role that actually I found memorable. Because a lot of times those thankless wife roles, you don't really... It's like, which which woman was that thankless wife? Oh, you totally! Know, you end up forgetting she, who they are. she nailed it. I mean, she really did nail it. I, I just think, and, and you're, you know, the way you said it is much better than the way I did. I mean, this was she could have done more with a better written part, but it is what it is, and it, you know, she obviously wasn't central to the story that they wanted to tell, uh, and that's maybe that's the thing that I'm. Yeah, she, 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 she was a, a she had a catalyst role to kind of help uh, Charles kind of through this this issue that he had loss of his son and get through that. So she she functions very well in context of the script yeah. to help uh, move him uh, through uh, his story. Uh, but the really interesting thing about Marcella Zabala is that she actually 
And, you know, it's so funny because I catch this every time I watch the movie where when they first meet down at the track in Mexico, uh, or actually outside of the uh, the bullfighting ring, she's she's like, Marcella, I'm Marcella Zavala. I'm the, uh, you know, I'm the uh, older sister of, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, right. And they kind of just have one of those acknowledgements like, oh, yeah, yeah I know who you are. Right. And and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what, I wonder who she is. And, and so this time I was like, well, I got to figure this out because I feel like, they're saying something there, but they're not really saying anything. I'm like, is she, you know, the sister of a, of somebody married to a movie star, or what is it? Well, it turns out she's actually the older sister to somebody who married Charles Howard's son. She's the older sister to somebody who married Charles Howard's son. So she, so his son Frank has a mother aunt, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's either Frank or Robert. I don't know which son it was, but yeah, his son, uh, his son married Marcella's younger sister, <laughs> and this is why that's how they address it in the film. <laughs> because nobody talks about the mother aunt. Because it's like, oh, right, right. <laughs> So I'm glad you looked that up. That's bananas. <laughs> ah, the times. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, speaking of great performances, Chris Cooper is Tom Smith. Uh, he, what a fantastic performance here. Always. I he mean, just, uh, always out of the gate. Yeah. Even if I don't know what he's doing, uh, chasing horses and, uh, you know, sleeping on a train. Don't know what he's doing. I don't care. It's Chris Cooper. I'll watch that all the damn day. I love Chris Cooper. He's fantastic. They call him the real horse whisperer, uh, that he had this innate ability around horses that nobody could really duplicate. Even the best trainers were found themselves in awe of his ability, but he had no social grace, and um, that ability led many people to put up with his crazy lack of social skill, um, but uh, uh, he found a real partner with Howard in Seabiscuit. Yeah, and when you say that, you mean Tom Smith is the real horse <laughs> Chris You're Cooper right. is not the real. I don't want to saddle Chris Cooper with that uh, that mantle, so to speak. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. I meant Tom. Uh, <laughs> Tom but he Smith. is right. But he is so good, and he's so subtle with everything that he's doing here, and it's great because he's. Uh, it, it's so uh, interesting how little and subtle his movements and his uh, his gestures are, well, and his affectation of speech. Well, and to the point where Gary Ross was, you know, they would talk about it, and Gary Ross, even even standing next to the camera watching him, he's like, well, I can't tell if he's doing anything, but I guarantee I'll be able to see it when I go watch the dailies. And that's, you know, I think that's how you get one of those actors who just can can do the real subtle stuff. And Chris Cooper is just, I mean, he's always... He's always doing that great stuff. I mean, he's just uh, really fantastic oh, with all just that. I love great. him. Uh, Toby McGuire, Red Pollard. How well do you think uh, Toby captured the dichotomy of Red Pollard? He is celebrated as this sort of intellectual, with this brutish intellectual that he is constantly reading Shakespeare and quoting Shakespeare, and I think they they you know they brought that out a little bit in the script. Uh, but he's also he was hot tempered and easy to fight. I I I thought Toby Maguire was the perfect actor to uh, to play Red Pollard. I mean. I... Toby was a guy who, I mean, I enjoyed him as Spider-Man, but uh, I think 
Well, and, and I think Wonder Boys was, I think, probably the film that for me really kind of got me uh, hooked on him. But Seabiscuit is where I really fell in love with him. And I just felt like he was just an actor who could really connect in ways that I found, um, for me, really powerful uh, in films. And I think that Tobey Maguire has such a, a his own kind of uh, difficult life that he had when he grew up that I I felt like he was the perfect person to really kind of bring this um uh this darkness out uh into this character and and play this character uh you know really torn and angry about everything going on in his life and it was really hard to kind of open up and kind of accept things um the way that um the way that Toby grew up I mean he had a lot of darkness in his younger life um I feel like it must have helped him attach to this character I, you know, I really enjoyed him in Pleasantville. I enjoyed him. Uh, I, Wonder Boys, you bring up Wonder Boys, is still the film that, uh, that I find my very favorite of uh, his work. Uh, but Absolutely. I, I, this is, uh, I, I think you're right. And I think that, that they got really lucky, frankly, with him, that they could find somebody who could both capture that darkness, uh, capture the wonder and excitement of winning, and fit the physicality of the character because this is a unique physical performance. Uh, you know, he didn't he he played the sort of giant of jockeys, but in general, uh, he was he he was able to truck with the jockey crew and the stunt jockeys and and not look out of place. And and so his his mannerisms, his physique, I think that really lends it to to the part. I think he was great. A couple of more people to to talk about before we bust out of here, but uh you know, for me the real highlight is William H. Macy. I don't think we can ignore uh Macy as TikTok McLaughlin, the uh, he was the race caller on the radio. He's great. Man, is he good. I you know, he it's it's a bit part. It's it, probably I, I'm guessing completely fictionalized, but uh it's just it feels so authentic for the time. I just absolutely love everything that he does here. What's interesting though is if you watch the if you watch the original races, I don't know if it's they I never got a name for the person who was calling the race. Uh you can find it on YouTube, the the final the match race. Uh and it's the same script. Like he's saying the same thing. Um uh, you know how many horses ahead he is, and and all these things. So it's they, it is you know maybe a fictionalized character, uh, but my goodness, the you know it's it's authentic language for sure because we had it. Uh, yeah, you know he was great. Uh, who else excites you on on uh, the cast before we move on? Oh, you know, just great. I mean, there's a lot of great actors. Michael Angarano, uh, Michael O'Neill, Eddie Jones, uh, even Gary Ross popping up as a track announcer. I mean, a lot of great people. I, I don't think we could continue, though, without at least acknowledging Gary Stevens uh, coming in as George Wolf. He is he is a jockey. He had no acting training, but he ends up delivering a really uh, great performance here as uh, as George, Red's uh, jockey buddy. And I think he's. Uh, I think he just does a, a solid job here. I really enjoy uh, seeing him in the film, and uh, it's not like he's an actor, but boy, does he uh, know how to you know pull off a performance. I thought he was great. Oh, I thought he was wonderful, particularly the the final race, their mo- their last moment together, when he slows down. Oh, 
Jeez. That well, that's the waterworks sequence. Like that's I don't even know. It is. I don't even know if I can talk about it. I don't even know if I can say the lines. <laughs> <laughs> that that kind of a sequence when he he backs up and he he's he you know is is helping because he knows what Seabiscuit needs. He needs to be right. he needs to he be needs head to look. head with somebody, and yep. he gives it to him. He gives he lets his horse give Seabiscuit the look, and then. It's off to the races, oh. so to speak. You're crying right now, aren't you? I am. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, George Wolfe was fantastic. Fantastic. He did. Uh, he actually went on and did um, uh, a series, I guess, Luck. He did the series Luck on HBO oh, with uh, sure. Dustin Hoffman. This was Michael Mann. Right. The, and, horse, uh, the horse show that uh, right. didn't have a lot of... Um, um, Drama because of uh, was it uh, ASPCA issues or something like that? It had some it was pretty, some pretty problems. Serious, yeah, though. he played Ronnie Jenkins in all nine episodes. He was also Augie French in the TV series Wildfire uh, once. So uh, everything else that all of his other credits, he doesn't have any other narrative stuff. All of his other credits are documentary. Uh, yeah. But he was great. He was he was really a a singular uh, performer in this thing. Yeah. John Schwartzman, I already mentioned John Schwartzman. I um, I thought, apart from the film just has a, a wonderful look to it. it, it's quite lovely, but the treatment of the track is stunning. The races are stunning. Oh, just absolutely beautiful work. I, I can, I, I know it was really technical filmmaking. You know, you get through like the, the really beautiful stuff where you're out in the trees and you're getting the horse, you know, and, and Toby kind of going through the trees or, or laying under a, laying under the, the juniper tree or whatever, just great stuff or the foggy stuff. I mean, there's a lot of that beautiful stuff, but that track stuff is so technical and trying to plan the races the right way. It's, it can be so challenging, but the way they shot it is just, I mean, it's stunning to look at. I, I just, I, and I, maybe that's why I find the racing just so awesome compared to going to a real racetrack or watching yeah, a real yeah. race. Well, did you see uh, Secretariat? I did. How does that stack up for you? For you at this one, particularly around specifically the cinematography. I can't remember the cinematography of of Secretariat that much, and I don't remember the film that well. I know I thought it was okay, but it didn't wow me or anything. I was like, okay, well, there I, I saw it. So to me, it is like the Poseidon adventure of horse movies, right? The way they treat it's a giant cast. Everybody has a cut. Like they everybody gets a reaction shot at every single moment of any emotional <laughs> weight. But the cinematography of that, which generally I didn't like the film. I I don't know. It on IMDb it stands up pretty closely. I mean, it, it's like a tenth of a point off uh below Sea Biscuit. It does wow. not deserve to be there. But the one horse innovation that they brought to Secretariat that they don't have in Sea Biscuit is the uh rear view between the legs of the horse shot. I kid you not, you are under the horse looking backwards through its crotch, at the horses behind it. <laughs> they cut to that angle a number oh, of times, and it really makes you appreciate uh, John Schwartzman's work on this film. Because oh my God, really? Anyway, I you know I bring up the I bring up Schwartzman, and I'm I'm such a fan. I mean, he obviously has some some big uh, movies under his belt since he he did Amazing Spider-Man, uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, Jurassic World. Uh, so uh, you know. He's yeah. he's got some big things uh, uh, under his belt, but this film, I think, the way he treated the racing and made it both an, an invigorating, exciting, you know, thing event to watch as an emotional beat in the film, but also make it a work of art. I mean, it was just 
lovely to watch how he the it, the visual respect he treated the track. What's funny is that uh, you know he had shot the rookie uh, the year before, and that is actually the film of all the films that uh, that he has shot. That's the film that is the one that. Uh, that linked Gary Ross to hiring John Schwartzman for this because uh, he, um, his son had, uh, the rookie was his son's favorite movie. And he's like, dad, you got to use that guy. And so that's, <laughs> that's how it came to pass. That's awesome. Love that. That's I actually love that. great. That is great. <laughs> so in spite of the cinematography being fantastic, they did have an opportunity to really screw it up with crazy fake horses. <laughs> well, they don't bug me, but I know some people are bugged by the equisizers, uh, which are you know jockey training devices. That's kind of like a the a, a horse that moves. It's it's almost like a bull riding sort of thing, except it's for <laughs> it horse is. riding. And yeah, you just you kind of sit on it and you ride, and uh, you got to kind of do the whole thing. Uh, and they use those a number of times, and they're designed to look pretty realistic. Um, but you know. Uh, it has been pointed out by people that uh, sometimes <laughs> the movement of the equisizer, when you cut from it to the movement of the actual horse, just in no way looks authentic. Uh, you know, it's similar to like, I, I don't know, uh, what's a movie with some some good rowing? Oxford Blues, you get some good crew action in there. It's like that. You'd have a <laughs> wide shot of a whole crew team and they're rowing, and then you cut to... <laughs> A guy on a rowing machine in a gym close up. Like, it's it's that kind of a jarring experience <laughs> occasionally. It's not, it, it's it it's lovely. The pacing is a little bit off on the horse's head. And y- you may note that. I'm just saying, if you've never seen the movie, get ready. And you know, ex- equisizers are crazy expensive. Yeah, if you're in the market, I guess. <laughs> I don't. It doesn't bug me. I hardly ever notice it. Only if I'm really looking. And generally, it's only Toby who's ever on the equisizer. I think uh, when George, when they're talking to, when he's talking to him, I don't know if he's on the equisizer or not. But um, I mean, he might be for some of the shots. But uh, yeah, just for I stability, know. I would imagine, just to be able to put them especially, together. Especially, especially the dialogue. Sort yeah, of stuff. right. But I don't know. It doesn't bug me though. Yeah. I'm okay uh, stunts by Dan Bradley. Uh, stunt coordinators Dan Bradley and Sylvia Wolf Bush. Uh, just to acknowledge um, great work in making uh, some crazy uh, horse horse on guy action. I mean, they they throw guys <laughs> around. Not horses. to mention the the horrible accident scene, which is just uh, oh. pretty devastating. Getting dragged around by a horse and then smacked into a wall. It's pretty brutal. It was brutal, and it looked brutal. And by that, I mean it looked great. Uh, yes. William Goldenberg uh, did the editing. Like I said, I already like it. All the transitions, uh, the the great little uh, Capra esque montage of all the news and all that. All that's great. Um, I I think they they do a great job. And you know, we we didn't mention, but I think editing is as great a place as any to discuss it. The really fascinating and ingenious way that Gary Ross chose to um, to have both of those big races start. Um, it's completely. Uh, antithetical to the way that Hollywood operates. You know, you build up to the start of a big race, and then you show the start of the big race, and then you show the big race, and then you show the the winning of the big race. Here, you build up to the start of the big race, the match race, and just as you hear the buzzer, it it fades to white, and then you just hear the radio, and you see like uh, images of people listening to the radio as you kind of are realizing this is how the vast majority of people in the in the United States at the time actually tuned into this. And I found it really fascinating. 
I did too. And I made a comment uh, to you that I, I thought it would be, you know, how great would it be to have been able to to listen to this on the radio? And you were like a big smart aleck, not. Uh, <laughs> but when I, I actually, I stand by that. Like there is an enormous amount of drama hearing the caller on the radio, uh, you know, having this collective experience around the horse. And I... I I think that it's uh, it's pretty magical. I think it was I, I to your point specifically. I love the way they did that, and I think it it brings us right back into the time. A callback to the way they kick off the film. It is a beautiful a beautiful transition, um, but I, I also think it it kindles something very special. Of course, this is you know we're two guys coming to you in your ears. So that's right. That's right. Anyhow, uh, William uh, Goldenberg. Uh, we've talked about him fairly recently. Uh, he's the cinematographer, or editor, I should say. He's the editor behind Heat, uh, also Zero Dark Thirty, and Argo, and Imitation Game, and oh my goodness, he's uh, he's got some fantastic credits under his belt. Awesome, awesome editor. Music, Andy Randy Newman. This, uh, you know, maybe I'm torn between this and The Natural, but these are, I think... Randy Newman's two greatest scores. I just think this music, it it fits the period. It fits the emotion. I think that he found a, a really strong way to uh, to score this film. It's just, it's really touching. You know what's funny about it? You say it fits the period. I think this really is his period. His best works <laughs> well, That's probably really, true. They really hearken to this period. And, uh, you know, even his, his pop music, right? His sort of, um, it, it harkens back. And even A Bug's Life, like when you can compare a bug's life to to this film you can feel like you know it fits the period there too like he's he's it's tough for him to break out <laughs> of this this sort right. of uh, uh, genre but it works really well here it's beautiful that's all i got how did it do at award season well this was uh you know it 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 was nominated for seven academy awards um it didn't win anything um it was kind of a big year for some hobbits but it was nominated for best picture and uh, that lost to Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. This was, you know, this was kind of that year where it's like, it's the last year. Let's give them everything because they're so great. And which they are. I mean, I really do enjoy that film. I'm just being smarmy. But um, yes, yeah, so Lord of the Rings took Best Picture. Um, it was nominated for um, Best Writing Adapted Screenplay, lost to Lord of the Rings. It was nominated for Best Cinematography, lost to Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Kind of can't argue that. That's a pretty strong uh, pairing, those two. Um, I'm kind of, you know, they're both pretty beautiful looking. And City of God actually was nominated that year as well. Also lost. Um, Best Art Direction Set Decoration, lost to Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Uh, It was nominated for Best Costume Design, also Lord of the Rings. Best Sound Mixing, also Lord of the Rings. Andy Nelson was nominated for Best Sound Mixing, but he lost. (laughs) Oh, what a shame. What a, what a shame. shame. Uh, best editing, we just talked about William Goldenberg, but that also lost to uh, uh, Lord of the Rings. So all in all, it was a great year for The Hobbits, but not so good a year for Little Seabiscuit. But how did it do in the box office? Well, you know, Seabiscuit was my birthday movie back in 2003. Maybe that's another reason I'm so connected to it. Do you it, think that it, propelled it to its ultimate success in the box office? I think it I think that was it. You are... I think I think I think people knew just intrinsically. Right. That, uh, I should go see this because there's some reason I just can't pin 
But uh, yeah, it opened uh, July 25th, uh, 2003. This movie cost $87 million to make. Uh, I couldn't find the uh, Princeton advertising budget. So that leaves it an adjusted budget of just under $114 million in today's dollars. Just like The Horse, the movie did capture the nation, raking in a little over $120 million and about $28.5 million internationally, giving it an adjusted total gross just under $195 million. That leaves our horse hero coming in with an adjusted profit per finished minute of about 577000 All in all, I think it's safe to say uh, we can chalk up another success for the little horse that could. <laughs> Aw. Choo-choo. Oh. Choo-choo. <laughs> uh, I think we can, Andy. And with that, uh, we should probably uh, go ahead and rank it, don't you think? I think it's time. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and uh, you'll see it right there in our uh, in our recently added films list there, and click on it, and go ahead and add it to your list, and let's see how it does. I'm uh, I'm a little concerned. I, uh, I'm i concerned about you. <laughs> oh, I'm concerned no. about you. No, no, no. And that this is going to be another Black Hawk Down battle. Let's see. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Seabiscuit or Hot Fuzz? Seabiscuit. Yeah, I, I would say Seabiscuit. Sea biscuit or out of the past. Sea biscuit for me. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, sea biscuit or aliens? Aliens. I'm gonna say aliens. Sea biscuit or the good, the bad, and the ugly. I I'm gonna say the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am too, surprisingly. Hmm. <laughs> Sea biscuit or zero dark thirty? Sea biscuit for me. Oh, zero dark thirty for me. All right, all right. Uh, here we are go. You, are you locked in on that oh, one? Oh yeah, yeah. Let let the games yeah. begin. No, no. Uh, okay, all right. Here uh, we go. Yeah. One, one, two, two three. three. Rock. rock. Okay. One, one two, two, three. three. Scissors. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, sea biscuit or seven samurai? I am going sea biscuit. I will give you sea biscuit. All right, Sea Biscuit or the Social Network? Sea Biscuit for me. You know, uh, in terms of <laughs> in terms of true stories, I am absolutely going to give you Sea Biscuit. I think I would probably put Social Network on first, but when I think about it in terms of sort of adaptations of real life, I get really mad. <laughs> so I'll give you Sea Biscuit. You mean Mark Zuckerberg still isn't brooding? <laughs> There may be brooding, but there's other stuff that makes me want to punch myself in the neck. It's oh, that's terrible. Uh, Seabiscuit or Zodiac? A lot of David Fincher. I'm going with Seabiscuit, though. Uh, I'll give you Seabiscuit, too. I can't believe this. I it's not the it sequel, be... Pete. It's not the sequel. It's Seabiscuit. <laughs> that's the one where he goes to Somalia. Oh, oh right, right. All right, that lands our horse at number 59. Uh, Biscuit is uh, number 29 on my personal flick chart, so I would have ranked this much higher. Yet I have not been doing well on my rock, paper, scissors uh, these last few weeks. So there it is, number 59. I uh, actually need to... Sea biscuit. Can I just tell you one of the things I learned uh, about this whole experience is, you know, there there are certain words that I can't spell and can't <laughs> seem to learn to spell, and apparently biscuit is one of those words. Apparently I, it is. Yes, I, I noticed. <laughs> uh, I don't even have sea biscuit on my flick chart right now, so I, I that tells you where it is for me. Sad. Yeah. Sad state of affairs. Yeah. So, what does that do for your? I assume it's a five star for you. 
This is absolutely five star film for Over me. Over on uh, Letterbox.com oh. slash the next reel. Absolutely. Uh, it, you know, it's a it's a four star film for me. So it's a six star film for me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, I can nickel and dime you to four and a half any way you want to cut it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so funny. Sorry, Seabiscuit. So funny. <laughs> Where do we go from here, Andy? Well, yes, we, uh, you know, as we mentioned, uh, we have a Listener's Choice episode coming up, and it is going to be Matt Medrano. And we are going to be talking about David Cronenberg's fantastic remake of The Fly. Mmm, Yummy. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. I've been throwing up on my food ever since. <laughs> I'm very excited well, okay. to talk about this. Before we do, though, we uh, we do have a film board uh, coming up just this very weekend. Uh, if you want to join us, head out to the theatres and catch up with Jack Reacher. Never look back. I'll bet it features Tom Cruise running. I bet he. I bet we he will. We shall see. I bet he will. <laughs> we shall see. Uh, so there you have it. That's that's where we go. And until then, oof, I gotta go to bed. All right. Well, I'm gonna go lolling for a few hours under the limbs of the juniper trees. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. <laughs> oh, for those keeping up, uh, we just talked about Seabiscuit, the story of Tobey Maguire on a horse. A straight-up family film. Would you agree? Uh, for the most part, yes. Okay. My story, uh, Nancy writes, uh, with a one-star review, and her review is titled, The Storyline Was a Winner. Great story but I hated the language and nudity in it. They turned what could have been a great family movie into something I was that I barely wanted to continue watching. Very sorry about that. Wow. So apparently naked horses are offensive to some because as far as I remember, <laughs> there was no nudity in this film. Well, that ties into mine <laughs> because, <laughs> because Athena also gave it a one star and said, I love the story of Seabiscuit. But it is so disappointing that they put the scenes in the brothel in this movie. What? It is very distasteful. And I hope that my children never watch this and are tainted by it. And I will say, my wife and I, knowing the brothel scenes were coming, we actually shooed our kids out for about 10 minutes while we waited to get past that scene. Well, I I feel like based on these reviews, I need to go watch it again or see if I can find some sort of a director's cut because I think maybe adding a little nudity or a brothel might help. Well, I think it was in the beginning when you weren't paying attention. <laughs> in the first 40 minutes, that's where it was cut. <laughs> slip, slip shod cutting, that's what it was. They cut the brothel. Oh, dear. Mm. Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. 
If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.